Welcome to a special edition of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with your host, Paul Kraus, LPC. In today's episode, we will be discussing the psychology of horror with Katie Jaramillo, LPC. Now, you will learn so many things about the genre of horror. You will learn about the crossover with psychology and stress responses. You will find out about why some horror movies reflect the times they are written in, the sociology, and you will learn a lot of things that you didn't know because I also learned things I didn't know and story arcs and some sort of situation with fear and stress responses and trauma and why some people are attracted to horror movies. Why do they sell like they do? And horror books. And now, in my regular voice... Katie Jaramillo is an LPC, and she's also an art therapist. She has the official art therapy credential. Katie Jaramillo is a registered art therapist in Grand Rapids and serving the West Michigan area. Katie's counseling approach is creative, person-centered, strength-based, trauma-informed, and existential. Katie Jaramillo is a white and Hispanic cisgender woman with lived experience of her own neurological recovery. She is a passionate ally to the under- represented communities and is interested in helping people of all races, ethnicities, sexual orientations, genders, and ability. Katie Jaramillo specializes in helping those with medical and neurological trauma experiences with which encompass treating our psychological and physiological responses to pain, illness, fear, and medical procedures, as well as working with individuals experiencing improving, declining, or non-normative neurological or cognitive abilities. Katie has the experience and the foundations to utilize counseling and art therapy with people experiencing a variety of neurological conditions from brain injury, spinal cord injury, stroke, dementia, or post-COVID syndrome, as well as many other diagnoses and life experiences. Katie is especially adept at utilizing art therapy to help clients express themselves and their inherent creative spirit. If you want to know more about Katie or perhaps you want to work with Katie if you live in Michigan, you can check out her on the website www.healthforlifegr.com or search for Katie Sharamilo LPC and you should be able to find her. Now back to the spooky special edition of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. Katie Jaramillo, welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. It's so good to have you on today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about the psychology of horror, which is timely considering the fall season here. Yeah, it was something that I was just talking about with some coworkers and friends at lunch, actually. And they didn't really understand what I was talking about when I said how much I love horror movies and scary books. And um, that kind of morphed into a presentation. And now here I am. Excellent. Yes. I uh, I have to say that I have not seen many horror movies since I was younger. I did actually watch some of the classic ones from the 70s and early 80s, uh, including the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But uh, I have, have strayed away from them because they scared me and they felt uh, a little bit too gratuitous lately. So we're not just going to be talking about horror movies, but the whole genre of horror mm-hmm. and the psychology of it and and, and even... Uh, apparently some uh, 
comparisons to stress cycles and trauma and EMDR and sociology. And you got a whole presentation. So I'm just going to kind of ask you some questions about it right now. Absolutely. Uh, but my first question is, how did you get into the horror genre? And and what what kind of mediums did you look at? Books or movies well, or whatever? I mean, it's hard to date back exactly why I fell in love with the genre. Um, I've always kind of liked being scared. I have several stories that went down in family lore about my parents jumping out at me and startling me as a toddler, which would lead me to scream and then to laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother did not have that reaction. It leads me to believe that there is something inherent that we have a different physiological response to fear that can be somewhat determined by our our not just genetics but by our biology um and so i think i've always kind of had a propensity to like this um i have a couple of like scary children's books mm. that would give me like that little bit of a thrill um the first time i went on an alpine luge slide um when i was 5 years old i would block up the brakes so that we went as fast as possible. So I've always had this innate thrill seeker part of me. And that eventually drew me into the genre. My first experience with horror was the ring. Um, it came out when I was 12, 13, saw it around then at a sleepover. I will admit that <laughs> that movie is nothing big to me now, but it terrified me at the time. Um, in a way that felt both real and not real. So I really enjoyed the thrill that that provided. Okay. So you, you know, early on you found that, wow, this was exciting or thrilling, Mm -hmm. like you said. And, and, and I, and uh, I wonder about, you know, you you also talked about an amusement ride, but the amusement rides are, are a little less safe than watching a movie in the, or reading a book in the safety of your own home. Yeah. But it's still a controlled environment where it's quite predictable. And horror movies and books do have an end to them normally, unless there's a sequel. So you do yeah. know that there's a part of us that do does know they're coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about let's talk about horror. What what is horror? You know, before we get to the psychology part, like what? Do, how do you yeah. define that? So the dictionary defines horror as an intense feel intense feeling of fear, shock, or disgust. Um, that's the Oxford English Dictionary. I tend to think more in terms of shock and fear. Um, the horror genres that play more off of disgust or gratuitous violence don't appeal to me, but they do fall under the horror umbrella. So I'm mostly here to talk about horror that deals with fear or surprise or shock. Um, in, in terms of horror being a genre of fiction, it's a the purpose is to create feelings of fear, dread, repulsion, or terror. It develops an atmosphere of horror. Um, and it has really deep roots in our in our cultural history. Um, it focuses on a lot of topics that are important to us as human beings and plays off of our fears and strong negative emotions related to those things. I like that. It's a very comprehensive view or and discussion about horror itself as a genre and as a concept so i guess that kind of leads me into the next thing which is well if you haven't noticed in if you're it's it's we're recording this in october okay so a lot of people in the united states spend 
I would say quite a bit of money on a massive Halloween decorations. In my neighborhood, I see an entire graveyard in someone's yard. There's a giant ghoul. As I drive at night, there are purple and orange lights. There are pumpkin carvings. There's people are going to these uh, different places where they they pay people to scare you uh, on hay rides and or some sort of walking through a haunted house. Uh, there are I haven't I don't really watch television much, but there's t- TV shows specials every year on this. So so there's a whole industry, which means, you know, in, in our society, that means people are paying money to be scared. So why why do we like being scared? Can you offer some insight on this? I, I have a couple of reasons. Um, I think part of it is that being being scared in a fictional sense we have a different meta emotion. So we feel differently about the feeling of being scared when it is fictional or removed from us. We don't like being scared in the emergency room. Mm. We don't like being scared um, when we get a call from our tax guy. We do like being scared when it's something removed from us. And our feelings about that fear are usually more positive. Not everyone shares this. It's, it's, you know, there are people who legitimately dislike being scared in any, any capacity. But I think the people who interact with Halloween decorations and scary stories and movies um, have positive emotions about these, these fearful emotions. Um, because movies and narratives and stories offer us a space, safe space to be scared, I've kind of come up with three C's that make sense to me. We take comfort in things that feel familiar to us. So the horror genre, as you know, like there's, we all know what ghouls and ghosts are. We all know what to expect around Halloween. So there's comfort in that familiarity. Um, They offer a sense of control. Like you said earlier, I'm not actually in this. Um, I can turn the movie off or close the book and put it away anytime. Um, And then there's a sense of catharsis. There's a sense of a release of negative emotions. Well, wow, that's making a lot of sense to me because I actually, when I said, but I do, why do we like being scared? I meant, you know, in the fun sense, I, I should have clarified that because, you know, with people that have gone through trauma or horrible things, uh, they don't like being scared. It's actually like, can we get that scary feeling out of my body? You mm-hmm. know, uh, with EMDR, we work a lot on the body and, you know, mindfulness practices and these sort of therapies. We're trying to help the person might be like, wow, I feel normal. I'm going to work. My brain isn't thinking about anything scary, but I I just always feel horrible inside. So we're trying to get that gone. So, but then like that, but then I'm thinking about this idea of the control when you, when you've been traumatized or something bad has happened, you you don't usually have much control over that. You only have a control over your reaction if you can escape it. Yeah. Um, but in this genre of horror movies and books and fun Halloween decorations and whatnot, there is a control element because we aren't, you know, we can leave. We don't have to participate in it. Um, it's it's make believe. It's not, you know, real. Uh, and so I, I could see that. And the catharsis was really interesting to me. So I appreciate you shedding light on that. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what other comments well, do you have about that? Well, the physical media itself can serve as a sort of container for the fear. Mm. Um, So I had a scary book growing up that I really enjoyed looking at it in the daytime. In the nighttime, I would take it out of my bedroom and put it in the bookshelf down the hall because it contained the scary creature in it. And I didn't want it in my bedroom, but I knew I could move it down the hall. This is when I was like five or six. Um, 
And so in the same vein, when we empathize with the characters in a horror story, they are contained within that narrative, that fictional world. And if we have the physical item, um, a lot of people are streaming these days, but we can actually take that item and use it like a physical container um, or at, at the very least turn off the screen. I like that. I like that a lot. And um, so I, I actually think that's kind of like a symbolic thing. Like I think, you know, there are, you know, kids often are afraid of ghosts and supernatural things. And then, you know, once a year, we're kind of like encouraging the kids to go out and dress up like wild characters. And and there's so many different ways to think about Halloween and not in a uh, scary place. But I think about like, oh, it's a controlled night where we get to dress up and be funny and silly and say, you know, trick or treat. You know, it's got a, of course, a different, a long history if you look into it. So can you tell us what the key types of the horror genre are or horror in general? Yeah. It's, it's it's interesting you brought up ghosts because one of I'm going to touch on one point before I kind of go into types of horror, mm-hmm. and that's reflective distance. Reflective distance is a term I borrowed from art therapy. Um, that's also part of my background. And all horror stories are a form of art in a sense. Um, reflective distance is having something be far enough removed from our own experience that we can empathize with it on an emotional and mental level, but it's not real to us. So like Mm -hmm. when I talked about being scared of the doctor or the tax guy, um, we're not really doing horror movies about them as villains. We're doing horror movies about vampires and ghosts, things that we as adults don't necessarily accept as real for the most part, but they become kind of stand-ins and they create enough distance between the things that stress us out in our day-to-day lives um, and allow us to relate to that in a more fictional, farther away from us form. Mm. I really like that you said that. I really like that point. I feel like it's almost like addressing our fear or our, our, our possible like you know, supernatural fear by mm-hmm. going to it. And then that helps us feel some distance. That's some interesting paradox yeah. there. I, I love how you said that. Yeah. But yeah, keep going with your ideas. I love this. And and some people have a legitimate fear of supernatural things like mm-hmm. ghosts. Um, yeah. And that's still very valid. They might not enjoy horror movies about the supernatural. I, I mm-hmm. um, personally don't believe in ghosts as per most people do. And so that's a genre I really enjoy. Um, I don't tend to like the genre of, of people, um, hurting each other. So that brings me to kind of the types of horror, like you asked a second ago. Oh, yes. Um, so they kind of span the more realistic to the more supernatural or paranormal. Um, so there's killer horror. This is your typical slasher. These were really popular in the Mm eighties. Um, in the 90s and two th- most of the 2000s, we saw a lot of kind of gore and disturbing horror taking place. Um, and these are your movies like Saw. These mm-hmm. I personally don't care for. I want to be removed from the disgust aspect of horror. I like playing with fear and surprise. Um, there's monster horror. Um, these focus on creatures like The Thing. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, classic. My personal, my personal favorite when I was a kid, I really liked Godzilla movies. Yeah. And my parents, I think, were trying to keep me from some of the slasher movies, you know, that were coming Mm -hmm. out in the 90s and the 80s. And so they would let me, they would say, oh, you can watch all these Godzilla monster movies or old horror movies from like the olden days of like the 50s and 60s, where a lot of those were like aliens and stuff because it wasn't so graphic. 
right? As the newer yeah. ones, they have these graphic images. It's hard to get out of your mind sometimes as a young person. And I did see mm -hmm. some of them, obviously. Um, but I loved them. I love monster ones. They're so fun. But I yeah. learned that a lot of the Godzilla movies actually, according to some scholars, were um, a way for some of the writers to deal with what it with what had happened to Japan uh, during yes. the war and that it was like actually kind of a large metaphor, uh, you know, of the nuclear attacks and, and, and just the fallout of, of world war two. And I thought that was so interesting, you know, because I love myths. I'm a huge myth fan. Oh my gosh. Like we should probably yeah. do a podcast on myths sometimes, but I'm huge into mythology, just like reading and learning about it because it's like a way for us to kind of reflect our humanity. And when I'm, kind of getting from you right now is that perhaps the horror genre in itself is a way for us to reflect on our humanity. So anyway, I just want to comment about same monsters, thing. but yeah, talk. Yeah, about no, it's exactly the same thing. You could, I, you could write an entire dissertation and a series of books on the particular history of certain horror monsters and you're spot on with Godzilla. So if you want to sort of understand the time that you're living in, one of the ways to do it, one of the shortcuts to do it is to look at what scary movies are coming out and what kind of frightening media is being consumed. That's a really quick way to kind of gauge the horror pulse of a culture because cultures create these monsters, right? Mm, yes. The monsters aren't necessarily, necessarily literal monsters, but they can be. Um, yes. Something that's... that we've seen a, a rise in is less of a literal take lately more we're seeing a little more paranormal horror psychological horror and existential which are the kind of the last three types that i went over i kind of divided into six and i think that's a result of kind of socio-political fears that are on the rise and the high high rates of mental illness that we're seeing which are really just a response to more difficult social conditions so a lot of people are relating to psychological horror which re relies on emotions like fear. Um, can I trust my own state of mind? Mm. Um, the paranormal with ghosts or spirits or questions about death and dying um, mm. and existential, which is as we've explored more space or the deep ocean, like what is our place in this universe? What is our place in time? What does it mean for me to relate to these grander concepts? So if you have any familiar familiarity with HP Lovecraft, mm. those are some very existential works. What can you give also an example monster. just for the audience? For the audience, yeah. Give an example. So I'm not a huge Lovecraft uh fan. I probably would be if I started reading more. Um, but he is kind of well known in human horror communities because he deals with issues of different dimensions and there's this grand monster called Cthulhu that the human mind is not capable of fully perceiving. Mm. Um, kind of like we're not capable of perceiving the concept of infinity, let alone a billion dollars. Mm. Um, that plays on ideas around dread and anxiety that we can get from thinking about our own existence and our own smallness. Um, and kind of the forces that we find ourselves at conflict with. And I want to add that these types of horror are not distinct groups. They often really overlap. That's a good point. Um, yeah, they kind of overlap. So you talk about psychological, existential, paranormal, killer, gore, disturbing, monster. Those are all different types, but they can all yes. kind of interlap and they have different characteristics. And 
Yes. I was thinking about that because, yeah, there's been a, a, a uprising of movies where people can't trust their own mind or the society. Mm-hmm. And, I, and and there's been some science fiction movies that I actually feel like take on a horror aspect. Um, one of the ones I was thinking of, and I don't know if you've seen this, is called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I have. Yeah. So I felt like, okay, as a person who watches nonviolent things and like pretty calm things a lot because I don't like violence just due to my job hearing about violence all the time. Mm -hmm. I felt that that movie had some horror elements because there was paranormal, there there was an existential threat, not only in the person's life, but also in the universe. And there was heavy psychological disturbance because they couldn't tell what universe they were in and who they were supposed to kill and who was their friend. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, and there was even like, some disturbing gore stuff in there as well Uh, what were your what was your take on that even though that's not technically a horror film i guess yeah that lands more in the sci-fi genre to me um but i think something i also love science fiction um Mm -hmm. and thriller and there's a lot of overlap between those three genres and they all incorporate these kinds of elements um i would agree with you it's very existential very, very psychological. Essentially, anything existential is psychological, psychological, but not every psychological thing is existential. Just to okay. make it really complicated. I love right? that. I love that. Um, I've got. I'm writing down more questions, but right now I want to ask you a little bit about how we connect this to psychology, which you mm-hmm. have, you've already been doing. Um, but I feel like talk to us about the stress t- cycle of trauma and how that might. Um, uh-huh. helped or hurt by horror films or books. So I, I I have kind of my own theories on this, as do many people whose work I'm kind of going to pull from here. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to say that this doesn't work the same for everybody. This really depends on your physiology and the types of scary that you're engaging with, um, what you're open to being exposed to because you don't mm. you want to keep that reflective distance. You don't want to get too close to a, a trigger point where it takes you out of the story and puts you into a trauma response. Um, so me personally, I will not engage with anything that involves harm to animals that is purposeful. Um, that takes me right out of the the enjoyment of the narrative and it would take me right out of any kind of potential cathartic effects that it could have. That would re-traumatize me, and you have to be careful about that in horror. Um, so for some people, they can't watch anything that involves children. Mm. For other people, they can't watch anything that involves a certain kind of injury. Um, but essentially, the way that we can use a narrative, especially a scary one, um, to kind of touch on our own trauma and elicit something akin to healing and relief Um, is recognizing that our fear and our stress response really mirrors the narrative arc. So in a narrative arc, what I mean by this is the stages of a story. You have your build, you get introduced to what's happening. You get introduced to your characters. You have a sense of where they are, who they are. And then something happens that activates them. Maybe a meteor lands. Um, And now they have to respond to it. And in our nervous system, this is us just going about our day-to-day life and a stressor happens. So now we have to respond to that. Then there's the rising action part of the story where people are kind of trying to figure out what to do. This mirrors as our stress rises in response to the trigger all the way up until um, what we call in in a narrative a climax. 
this is kind of the height of the conflict and fighting that conflict and resolving. And I say fighting because that's what we typically think of, but this really becomes kind of a fight, flight, um, flee, freeze, flop. Um, this is ah. where we show our stress response. And most movies involve some kind of fight in the climax of the story. There's probably right. a lot of fleeing and hiding and freezing and shock that the characters experience during the rising action. Um, so that's where this departs a little bit. So after our climax or our peak stress response, our peak stress levels, we get to witness in the story a falling action. Okay, they've had the final fight with the masked killer um, or the monster. We think it's dead. And now we're we're calming down. We're seeing the characters. They've called the police. The police are at the home and like everything is going to be okay now. Um, and so we get to experience their relief that their their monster or their fear or the killer is defeated. Um, and our nervous system gets to sort go into the parasympathetic response where we're like saying, phew, I'm so relieved. This is over. The threat is over. The danger is past. And so the story takes our nervous system on this little ride where our stress builds, our sympathetic response is activated when the characters is. We rise up to the climax of the story. We get to see something resolved and then we get to come back down. And why this can be so helpful is that it can be really hard to activate our parasympathetic or our rest and digest response um, on our own. Mm, I and see. so following a story that allows us to empathize with characters and witness them in that arc helps us to be like, oh, phew, I, they're safe. I'm safe. It's a louder signal to our brain to go into the rest part of the stress response and kind of complete that complete that stress cycle. So it's a good reason not to walk out of a film, right? <laughs> Maybe yeah. stay with it. And, yeah, uh, it unless reminds, there's something that closes the gap you. of reflective distance. Right, and it makes you feel like you're too far in it. But it reminds me of mm -hmm. a progressive muscle relaxation. Yes, a little bit. Where you grip the muscle really, really hard. You like flex or your face or your arms or your legs or whatever, and then you let it go. That's Ooh. a that's a great analogy that I hadn't thought of. Yeah, it's very much like that. But yeah. we're using an external source, in this case, a scary story mm. to help us grip. Yeah, and then it's like almost like, oh, all is well. Everything's resolved. And mm -hmm. now, whew, I can just sort of relax again. So... I yeah. like that. So it's like, you know, instead of having to go externally thrill seek and jump off a building with a bungee cord, I could mm -hmm. perhaps stay in the comfort of my own home and make sure I just eat popcorn and hydrate yeah. and watch this film. And then there's the there's the uh, part where it's supposed to hopefully and mm -hmm. unless it's like uh, the end of uh, the Blair Witch Project, which did keep me on edge. Yeah. And there's supposed to be a falling action, the story where things are resolved. Um, but we do get a resolution of sorts with the Blair Witch Project. And I was going to add that in, too. Horror yes. does like its ambiguous endings. Yes. And sometimes it gives you an, 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 excuse me, it gives you an ending with one last jump scare. And I'm not mm -hmm. going to name movies at this point because that'll give things away. Right. Um, I don't want to do spoilers. Um, or there'll be one like questioning, oh, my God, did they actually win or is it still alive? it being a monster, a supernatural force. Um, and I think 
for for those of us who are thrill seekers, we get one last little woo adrenaline pop and then the credits roll. And that's, that's kind of what's interesting about, about this, the credits roll on the movie or the show where we close the book um, or we close the app that we're reading on. um, And that's our falling action. So the, we have our own rising action and in, in anticipating taking in something scary. Um, we have our own climax in viewing the scary thing. And we have our own falling action and coming back to our reality of like, oh, I'm in my living room. I'm safe. They don't, they might not be safe. This, they've just set up a sequel, but I'm fine. So it's interesting because then, you know, I think you're in a good spot to watch the horror movies if you feel safe in your home. But it's interesting to me. So some people that watch horror films, then they can't get it out of their mind and they go, they they won't turn off the lights for the next week. So what's up with that? Can you talk about that a little bit? The people that have this adverse reaction to horror? I I don't have the science or the evidence on this, but my... My feeling and and having talked to people about horror just for years and years, because it's something I've always loved, um, is that the horror movies don't help them elicit that parasympathetic response to the same degree. Mm. Um, and I think that comes down to where their stress, what their stress looks like in their day-to-day lives and possibly early experiences with horror play into this. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I think for them, they have simply activated their sympathetic nervous system response. They've hit that gas pedal, made themselves all stressed out and scared. The movie ends, they're still stressed out and scared. They're not completing uh, their arc. They're I not see. completing their cycle. And, and you know, keep going. Yeah, I, I just I couldn't honestly say why that is different for some people. Um but I think different types of trauma can play a role. I think our physiology plays a role. I think our early life experiences play a role. Um, our triggers play a role. So I can complete a stress cycle watching my favorite kinds, which are psychological, paranormal, um, existential. But if I am watching something that is kind of 2000s era that involves cruelty to people, that does not complete my stress cycle. And I will ruminate on that and have an adverse response to that kind of story. So I don't consume those types of, of stories. That makes sense. So, so you kind of have to know yourself, right? And it's not oh, for everybody. Yeah. yeah. And I've definitely gone into some movies expecting one thing and then seeing something I regret. Oh no. Um, yeah. Yeah. It happens. But you you get better at like highlighting that reflective distance, saying this is this is not real. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is you know this is fictional, and kind of grounding back to your present is a good skill to have if you feel like trying out a new horror movie. Yes, that totally makes sense. Um, I'm glad you commented on that. I wanted to talk a bit about. Um, how there's different narrative conflicts that mirror like some real life conflicts that maybe society or people are going through. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I, I've um, kind of found there to be, I've divided it into about seven different Mm -hmm. narrative conflicts. And again, these, um, these can overlap or there can be more than one present in a story. I think there ought to be more than one present in a, a longer, like a like an actual book. Um, 
and they happen on different scales. So this is essentially every story involves a character. And I, I just said for the sake of this person. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have person versus person. This is a conflict that pits one character against another. Um, versus, person versus self. Mm-hmm. This is when you are battling with within yourself of two competing desires or selves mm-hmm. um, or goals. This is this is where you see psychological horror turning up. Person versus person, on the other hand, is where you see a lot of killer, um, killer-based horror showing up. Think Halloween with Michael Myers. Um, there's person versus society. Mm-hmm. Think the Hunger Games, which is not horror, but it's a good example. Yeah. Um, person versus nature. Sometimes we see that showing up. Um, in a survival sense. So someone has to survive the wilderness and that can be an offshoot of the horror genre. Um, Sometimes it's very literal, like annihilation. Nature becomes this entity um, that someone has to survive and and kind of fight against in some way. Um, Person versus fate slash gods. This is where there's some huge, larger force that a person is fighting against um, or trying to manage yes. this would be like final destination where death is literally a force to be reckoned with mm. um person versus the unknown this is a character fighting an entity that's not entirely known so this can this can include some of our alien narratives this can include some of our ghost stories um this can include a lot of our existential horror like what if we get lost in space how big is this there's so much unknown to it um person versus technology this is a newer category this is where you kind of think of black mirror this Mm. is a person a character or group fighting to overcome like an unemotional or unsympathetic machine or programming and this has really started to come about with our modern era and our use of technology and technological innovation so ai is is already starting to show up in our horror movies yeah wow that's a that is I love how this all like kind of mirrors what we're kind of going through as people mm-hmm. and as societies. Um, and I feel like there's something to learn through these, uh, but it's like kind of like all these feelings or thoughts from the writer are getting put into this kind of yeah. like, excited over like very dramatic dra- genre, I suppose you'd call it. Yeah. And honestly, I, I've identified seven narrative conflicts here, mm-hmm. as well as kind of six, five or six genres of horror. Any of these conflicts can show up in any of those genres. It just depends how the person does it. Mm. Um, so I've watched horror movies where there's a plant that wants to eat people. Um, it's called The Ruins. Um, it's pretty old, so I hope that's not a spoiler. Um, but that involves aspects of gore aspects of person versus the unknown um there's a lot of psychology to it person versus self shows up person versus nature is the key conflict there um but it falls into you see several conflicts at play and you see several genres coming into into play as well and how you might categorize that so it allows us to make for some really unique and complex storytelling yes i love that i i think you're doing a wonderful job at explaining this to it there's so much here i I was looking at some of your presentation slides and i wish we had time to go through all of it we have about 10 more minutes before uh we've both got obligations but Mm. i 
I wanted to quick gloss over a little bit of horror through the ages, but then I want to—I I really want to ask you about Haunted House and how that relates to EMDR and IFS. So I'm just going to gloss over this. But Katie, yeah. you identified this horror through the ages thing, and I thought this was so mm-hmm. interesting. Talking about the U.S. history here, yeah. In the in the 1930s, there was a lot of vampire mummies and uh, xenophobia, and we believe this was you wrote a means for escape from realistic fears, like immigrants or others at the great depression while processing fear through a safe outlet brand new thing called movies and allowing it to be released mm-hmm. so cool but i'm just i don't i can't read all these but i'm just going to go through and just see if you have any comments but like yeah 1940s was like wartime violence and the monster within the real type uh real horrors of wartime there's a lot of movies out for that the dormant propensity for violence um 1950s nuclear fears and tension because godzilla. of the cold war godzilla atomic bomb dropped in japan uh, creatures, mutant creatures, invasions, a lot of mm-hmm. movies about aliens invading yes. Earth. Yes. Uh, the day the Earth stood still. A fear of the other being mm-hmm. people of a different ethnicity from a different country. And we otherized it in a supernatural and existential way and saying, oh, what if they were aliens? Here's how we would respond. It's not the most flattering thing if we think of the, the people we viewed as different from us at that time. But it was something. It was a story that created reflective distance for the the consumers of those stories. Right, and culture is you know change. It obviously this is we're talking about the nineteen fifties. Yeah. You know, and I just thought this was interesting. Um, the sixties, the cultural uncertainty, racism, and tension, social anxieties, civil rights, women's rights, generational divides led to movies as outlets to process large scale changes in society. And you. You uh, you mentioned George Romero's Night of the Living Dead was a touchstone moment in horror. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that for a second? This is where we got our modern concept of a zombie. So uh, zombies have their roots in hoodoo and voodoo. Mm-hmm. Um, but George Romero was the first to kind of grab hold of that and bring it into a, our more um, our more American lens. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the zombie is a reanimated corpse. Mm-hmm. And we now in in modern horror we have a couple different kinds of zombies we have we've added kind of in that virus component um but the idea of a zombie in the 60s was these mass movements of people that were somewhat mindless but they still were a force to be reckoned with um yeah and so how do we reckon with this massive force or these unmoving groups of of people that we see to be a threat Yes, absolutely. Um, and then it was interesting in the 1970s, slashers and serial killers, fears moved into the neighborhood following the social unrest of the 60s. Slashers, serial killers, challenges to female empowerment in the suburbs no longer being safe, all increased focus on material fears. I, I found mm-hmm. this, I, I, we don't have time to comment on all these, but I found this so interesting. So I'm just going to preview. You guys can do your own research, but uh, 1980s, automation, corporation, aliens, overlords, technology, 1990s, feminism and the return to witchcraft. The 2000s with your found footage and ultraviolence and the disgust. That's the whole Blair Rich project. Um, mm-hmm. reflect saw. saw the reflection, you know, possibly the post 9-11 world there from magical mm-hmm. and mystical things uh, of the 90s to this gory, violent stuff, cultural overwhelm. 2010s, yeah. the monster is us. Fear turns inward and questions if humans are the monsters with an increase in human psychology and social commentary. That's very interesting to me. And then this is... Mm-hmm why this is the one of the most interesting ones and i haven't fully 
maybe seen a movie with this yet, but 2020s, the monster is trauma. Fear mm-hmm. remains on the inside to reflect collective fears of personal and generational past coming back to haunt us as well as leaning into a sense of dread or being trapped. I feel like that's a perfect segue. Do you have any comments on that? I, we went over that really quick because it's, you know, yeah. you did such a great job with this, oh, this, this presentation materials, but can you talk a little bit about that? Um, two comments um, before we kind of dive deeper into it. These, my, my bullet points for horror through the ages come directly from an article online. And I apologize. I don't remember the title of it. It's on a different slide as the website, but I think you could probably just type in horror through the ages. And I don't remember if this was Buzzfeed um, or slate or something to Mm -hmm. that effect, but it takes you through it. Um, And so I, I kind of borrowed their breakdown, but added in a few details of my own from other articles. Um, The second is the 2020s where the monster is trauma. This is um, we're seeing this in our, kind of what some people call the more highbrow horror. So think Jordan Peele's recent works. Mm. Um, Mm. Although a lot of his works are about like horror is race, like the monster is racism, which is a human created thing. Um, We, we see kind of like illness or disease can represent horror. Mike Flanagan is someone who's really a master and, you know, the monster is trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. He's doing a lot of shows all on Netflix um, where we see trauma represented as supernatural entities, and we see a lot of family dynamics at play. Ah, uh, okay. Those are my two big names for the kind of the 2020s, the monsters, trauma. Um, and that is actually something that we see in the one of a really common horror trope or a horror story, mm. which is the haunted house. Ah, uh, yes. Um, okay. A house, if we were to borrow from EMDR terminology, a house serves as a container for trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mentioned Mike Flanagan earlier. He's one of my favorite horror directors. Mm. Um, A lot of his works are centered in or around a house or family. Um, And the house becomes the receptacle for the traumatic memories or the repetitions of certain patterns. Okay. Um, so the haunting itself is an allegory for the sensory or emotional experiences that linger in our individual body. So the house can serve a, as a bit of an individual role okay. in kind of containing those memories or those experiences or those narratives. It can also serve as, as, as a kind of collective role um, and that the house's inhabitants can mirror our individual parts. There's so many ways to look at a haunted house through the lens of psychology. I could go on. Oh, yes. Okay. So uh, uh, can you connect this at all a little bit to EMDR and internal family systems a little bit? Yeah. So a haunted house um, is like essentially imagine if your container was big enough to live in and then some other person or even you move into that container or say you move into somebody else's container the memories can serve, this is kind of my theory, the, mm-hmm. the memories that we find to be traumatic that we've put into our container symbolically become the ghosts that haunt the house. Mm. And so the haunted house genre says, what if someone lived in that container and it was a house and those ghosts or beings represent those unhealed parts uh, or those unhealed uh, memories. And one of the reasons I love Mike Flanagan so much is he's caught onto this. I don't know if he knows EMDR or IFS, but that's what he's doing with a lot of his narrative. 
Yes, I love that. Yeah. So people familiar with EMDR or internal family systems will definitely get a kick out of, of this section with this uh, haunted house metaphor. Now you have so much information here, we won't be able to get to it all. Um, I wanted to ask one last question before we talk about what your therapy is. Now people could contact you mm -hmm. if they want to work with you. But um, one was, I was curious about like comedy horror. Uh, I, 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 because uh, I had a friend who wrote his uh, his debut novel is called The Rook, came out in 2012, and it's about this uh, person in the UK that is like a normal sec, uh, like a office worker, but then they actually have this job where they're protecting the UK from supernatural threats, and it's like this kind of hilarious, like super scary monsters everywhere, but it's like this kind of like funny British humor situation or like Shaun of the dead right yeah. like where they're kind of like making fun of the zombies or like making fun of like scary movie like making fun of scream could you talk yeah. a little bit about what what's up with that i think that's where we're seeing you know of our six key emotions i think that's where we're seeing surprise and shock come into play mm -hmm. and it's kind of like my early experience with horror where i would get scared and then i would start to giggle mm. so I think there's an element of shock where, or surprise where we get startled and then we're able to laugh. Um, a lot of, a lot of people have probably experienced crying when they mean to laugh or la crying when they're laughing or laughing when they're supposed to be upset. The physiological mechanisms for laughing and, and crying are the same They're And uh, uh, they're emotions being outlet in a sudden way. Um, so I think what happens narratively is that we're getting familiar with some of these tropes or we just want to kind of have fun with them, um, and, and make a little bit of fun of them or find the humor in situations in which maybe the antagonist is one of those forces that we've talked about, where maybe the narrative conflict fits the horror genre, but we have, we're coming at it from an angle that's humorous and the stress cycle is recurring throughout anytime there's a joke made there's a rising action of the joke that's being set oh, up oh yeah there's the joke itself and then it lands and then we laugh and that's an outlet laughter i believe is the parasympathetic response of sorts i think so yeah i mean people have i i need to look that up but i'm pretty sure that you can't really laugh if you're in a very sympathetic state and in fact <laughs> There's even been these, you know, there's a big reason that people have, and this is a whole nother podcast, but there's research about people watching comedy helps yes. relieve stress. Um, and so I wonder about the horror comedy hybrid where you're like stressed and all of a sudden you're, it's like a faster release because in the horror mm -hmm. comedy genre, in my opinion, there's lots of like gags in between the horror instead of the whole climax and then the, and the come mm -hmm. down. So that's interesting. That's like a shorter version of that. So. I, this is such a, a great topic. Uh, I'm excited for you to present this um, to everyone at the clinic. But I think that the listeners have got a really good uh, beginning to learn about the psychology of horror. So tell us a little about you and what type of therapy do you do now? Um, and, and, and how could people and we'll talk about how could people could contact you later. But yeah. Yeah. So I'm a, a counselor and an art therapist. Um, I do both. And art therapy is essentially a form of mental health treatment that involves um, creating images or 3D objects to explore and and process some of our some of the things that we're dealing with with our mental health. I'm trauma informed, so I work primarily with people 
um, who have trauma and the way that impacts their nervous system is, has a lot to do with how I think. I also use a lot of narrative therapy, kind of goes hand in hand with art therapy. Um, I like to understand the, pe- the stories people tell themselves about what's happened to them or what is happening to them. And is there another way to look at that story? Um, and how do we kind of contextualize our real life experiences into these narrative elements so that we have a sense of how to get through a crisis or a conflict and get into our falling action and into a resolution of set of sorts. Very good. Yes. And creating a little bit of a sense of safety, even post-trauma mm-hmm. is kind of what I'm hearing yes. there. And I know you yes. know a lot about trauma and, and all sorts of things. And you've worked with survivors of medical injuries and um, other physical injuries as well. Mm-hmm. And that's that's my main interest is, is medical trauma. I'm a survivor myself mm-hmm. um, of, of having a major injury. And that touches on kind of questions of ourself versus ourself person versus self conflict mm. person versus you know it's a very existential experience to realize something has happened to me and to my body and what does that mean for me going forward um and yes. the medical system and medical procedures can be very scary oh um, and going going through the horror genre is one way to engage with that that sometimes provides enough reflective distance for me and other times gets way too close and I need to go ahead and just pull back and watch something that involves a ghost because I that's not something I believe to literally exist at this time in my life. Um, so I found stories to be an incredible way for me to understand my experiences from a, a slightly different place and different perspective. And I try to help my clients do the same. I actually have several clients who like horror movies and we pull them into session. That is so creative. That is so creative. Yeah. And and I think that's such a good summary. Um, Yeah. I love how you laid that out there. And, and I think there's a lesson here, not only the horror of psychology, you know, the psychology, sorry, the psychology of horror. Well, I'm going to leave that in. That's funny. The psychology of horror, right. Um, That you can, you know, reflect on different objects outside of ourselves or within ourselves, um, different feelings we have to process some healing, um, especially when you're working with a therapist who can help guide you. So um, I'm going to put all Katie's contact information in the show notes. And um, yeah, this has been wonderful. And I appreciate your time and and giving us uh, your, your one of your fun pieces of wisdom about the psychology of horror. This has been very enlightening, Katie. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I could go on about this topic for another couple hours. I I promise you there's so much more to learn about it. And I just encourage people to find the stories that resonate with you, whatever genre that might be. All stories are going to have a similar um, narrative arc that you can empathize with the characters and complete the stress cycle if it's the right fit. Love that. Thank you so much, Katie, for your time. Appreciate that. Thanks. And there you have it. 
This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. As most of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. My colleagues and I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to save lives and curb violence by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us online by signing our petition on the website, sharing the website with your network of people, donating to the cause if you like, and you can now even write your congressperson from our website with a simple form. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are a therapist looking for ethical and excellent medical billing services, check out therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. Billing services created by therapists for therapists. If you're looking for an EMDR International Association consultant, I am a consultant and I can provide you the 20 hours you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups online and in person and I do individual consultation. Just send me a message at the website and I'll get back to you. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out the great training opportunities with EMDR Training Solutions. I've worked with them before and they are phenomenal, so register today. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment at a local counseling center in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest. And while these are based on the literature they have read and the experience in their fields, this should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order from the comfort of your own home online while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your national or local therapy organizations such as the American Counseling Association or the American Mental Health Counselors Association, please get involved. At least pay the dues. It will help the lobbyists in our field keep us from becoming gig workers. And of course, there's the bonus of increasing mental health education around the United States and helping people understand what counseling is and promoting best practices within our profession. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week. Group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the, match. They played the Monster Mash. The Monster Mash. 
It was a graveyard smash. They played the mash. It got on in a flash. They played the mash. They played the monster mash. Out from his coffin, Rex's voice did ring. Seemed he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. The monster mash. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the mash. It's caught on in a flash. It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. Now everything's cool, Drax a part of the band And my Monster Mash is the hit of the land For you, the living, this mash was meant to When you get to my door, tell them what is sent Then you can mash Then you can Monster Mash The Monster Mash And you, my graveyard smash Then you can mash You'll catch on in a flash Then you can mash Then you can Monster Mash Mash! 